Take out a Bible, open it to Hebrews chapter 2. Over the years I've observed that people don't pay attention to warning signs. Whether it's driving on the highway at 75 to see a sign that tells you to slow to 55 for a corner, or going to a beach with a sign clearly marked, no swimming, only to cross over the berm and watch people in the water. I've seen rock formations with clear warning signs written about the number of people who've died climbing on these rocks, only to see people climbing on them. And I've been to tide pools with strong warnings about people being carried off to sea, written both with public signs and then personal pleas not to play here. And yet they were filled with people. And it's not just them. It's us. More than once living in the tropical paradise that is Moorhead, Minnesota, I have seen no travel advisories stating that there's no visibility in the roads, only to get excited that there's going to be nobody at the grocery store. So I get in my car and I head out, only to find that I can't see anything on the road at all. Friends, there are warning signs abounding, and we don't pay attention. I remember in Dallas sitting down with Hurricane Katrina victims, talking to people who'd lost everything, telling the stories of all of the warnings that they'd heard over the years, only to have small storms arrived and how they became jaded by the warnings and they just stopped paying attention until they lost everything. I'm quite confident we've got friends in Southwest Florida who could tell a similar story now. There's something about us as people There's something about us that when we hear a warning, we see a warning, we're convinced it's for everyone else and we are the exception. We're convinced it's dangerous for them, but not for me. Friends, this morning, we're going to hear a warning, a purposeful warning written to believers in Jesus Christ that we would be warned. In fact, if you've been paying attention, the book of Hebrews, the book we're walking into, has five warning passages in it. Five strongly worded warnings intended to keep you safe, intended to protect you. Warnings that are for you and for me. So this morning we're to open up Hebrews chapter 2. and Let's pray about our time in His Word. Pray with me. Gracious Father, we are so thankful for your word that you have given it to us. Father, this morning we have a a hard passage, a passage that causes tension for many people. And yet, Father, it is written to us as a warning. So, Father, I want to pray now that we as a people would be rightly warned, that we would understand that there is danger and that we're to stay clear of it. Father, would you warn us? Father, pray also that you would comfort us. Comfort us with the truth of your son Jesus. Comfort us with the reality of salvation. Comfort us with the reality of 
Jesus Christ who will never let us go. And yet, Father, you desire your people to be warned. So with some hubris and sobriety, God, we open up your Bible this morning and ask that you would speak clearly and directly to our souls, that we might heed your word. Father, we trust you. We trust your son, Jesus. And we trust your word this morning as our authority. Speak to us, Father. In your name we pray. Amen. Last week we opened up Hebrews chapter 1. The author of the book of Hebrews, I will remind you, we have no idea who that is. And I would tell you, that should not challenge our confidence in the book of Hebrews or in the Bible, even in the slightest. I want you to know as we walk into some of these hard passages, there's lots of arguments that exist in the world about the trustworthiness of the Bible, the author. I just want you to know from the beginning, from an apologetics thought, there are answers to all of those questions. Do not let your faith get squashed. What we find here is that the author starts in his book by proclaiming that Jesus Christ is better, that he's superior. He uses five arguments. I want to recap them for us because I want us headed into chapter 2 to have a a strong picture of who Jesus was and the work that Jesus accomplished. His five arguments are this. That Jesus was appointed heir of all things. Points to the reality that as the heir of the Father, He has dominion over all things. He rules and reigns over all things. Tells us he was the creator of the world, that he was the agent by which God created everything. Thus, we are to understand at the voice of Jesus, all of creation obeys. So when he says to a storm, stop, and it does, we should not be surprised. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. You were to go outside and you were to feel the sun rays, which on a day like today would be awesome. If you were to feel the sun and you were to see the light streaming through, that's the radiance. We're to understand that's who Jesus is. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the part we feel, that we could sense, that we could take in. He's the exact imprint of the nature of God. He's God. In every essence of godness, Jesus Christ was God. Then he says that after making purification for our sins, and by that I mean after he created a pathway of salvation for you and me, that after Jesus Christ submitted himself to being nailed to a Roman cross and taking on our sin, That in his death, our penalty was paid. And in his rising, our new life was guaranteed. That after making a purification for our sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of his Father in glory. His work completed to reign and to rule. Friends, this is the Jesus that we worship. This is the Jesus who laid down his life for our salvation. 
So when we come to chapter 2, we should have been rightly confronted with the reality of who Jesus is. And now we get a warning. So let me read it to you. I'm going to read all four verses and then we'll dig in. Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, It was attested to us by those who had heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to His will. Therefore, the author writes, because of who Jesus is, and because of what Jesus has done on our behalf, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. Friends, there seems to be a category for people who are paying attention, but not close enough attention. There seems to be a category of people who acknowledge and yet don't pay close enough attention that leads to them drifting away. That's the warning here. Pay closer attention. Because of who Jesus is, because of what he's done, pay close attention. The author is calling you up. He's calling you in, lest you drift away. Years ago in college ministry, we would take annual float trips to the Spring River in Arkansas. When we'd take college students, sometimes as many as 50 to the river, we had one-ish rule. Stay together. We would accomplish this rule by recommending to everyone, these inner tubes all had a rope, tie yourself to somebody else. Why? Because we were going to come to multiple forks in the river. And if you wandered off by yourself, you might find peril. But there are some of us who've been down the river a lot and we can protect you. So when you come to the first fork in the river... Should you wander left by yourself, it's actually not that bad of a deal. Problem is, the water's really shallow, so you just drag your hiney across the rocks for a couple hundred yards. It's not fun. It's not enjoyable. But you go, man, it's not that big a deal. The problem is the second fork. Because if you go right instead of going left, there's actually a rapid over there that literally has caused people on inner tubes to perish. They don't survive it. So when you get on your tube and you think, hey, this is just going to be a fun day. Let's just sit in this 58-degree water on this 110-degree day. It's going to be a blast. There's a real risk. And if you're not paying attention, you will drift away. You might go somewhere that you have no idea what the consequences for you are going to be you might not understand the cost. The author of Hebrews says, pay attention lest you drift away. 
It's worthy for your consideration that I take Jesus' teachings on the parable of the soil and bring it into this conversation because it's part of a drifting, if you'll allow me to say it that way. Matthew 13, 3 through 9, Jesus teaching. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. And other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But the sun rose when they were scorched. Since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. And other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Friends, I would submit to you, This is a warning. This is, in essence, Jesus saying the same thing. Pay much closer attention. Why? Because there are birds out there looking to devour. Why? Because the sun might well scorch you. Why? Because thorns might choke out the seed. Pay close attention. Jesus' words, be the good soil. Now why? Why does this matter? Why does the author of Hebrews, in lieu of Jesus and his work, who he was and what he's accomplished, why does this warning matter? Why might you pay attention? Why must you avoid drifting? This is the bite of the warning. Verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The author writes, since the message declared by angels. This is alluded to in chapter 1. We didn't lean into it much in chapter 1, so we'll take it here. Chapter 1 starts by saying God spoke in many ways. One of those ways was apparently angels delivering the law to Moses. We never talked about it in Exodus, because Exodus doesn't mention it. You want to open your Bible, you want to find it? In the book of Acts, Stephen does. Stephen testifying to the Sanhedrin says, confrontationally, that you received the law as delivered by angels and that did not keep it. Paul makes a similar articulation in Galatians 3. But what the author of Hebrews is saying here, angels aside, is that what was spoken in the Old Testament proved to be reliable. When God gave a warning in the Old Testament, God fulfilled on the retribution. Quite literally, God keeps His Word. To remind you of the words of Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. Jude, one of the small books at the end of your Bible before Revelation. Jude, with no chapters, just verses. This is what Jude writes. 
Now I want to remind you, although you won't fully knew it, you see the warning? That Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and their surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. What Jude wants you to understand is if you look back and you read your Old Testament, you see examples of God telling you, giving you a warning, and then carrying out judgment. So the author of Hebrews asks, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Listen to me. The Bible is clear that sin is real and that you and I have sinned and we have fallen short of the glory of God. That's every last one of us. Make no mistake, Paul calls himself the chief of all sinners. He's not joking. He believed himself to be the biggest sinner. And yet his salvation was not in him being good enough. It was in him trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation. Friends, there's one answer. How should we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? You can't. There is no escape. The Bible, the Bible makes it plain and clear without Jesus Christ. There is no salvation. There is judgment. Jude confirms the warning. Jude 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Keep yourself in the love of God, Jude. Pay close attention. The book of Hebrews. So how do we know that salvation is the answer to the warning? If in fact there is a judgment that's coming, and if, in fact, Jesus has come bringing salvation, how do we know that's the answer? The author gives us that response, the end of verse 3. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God, who bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. The author gives you three proofs about the author, about the offer of salvation. First, it's true because it was declared by the Lord. The New Testament, when you find Lord preceded by the, most often, not always, most often it's going to refer to Jesus, that it was declared by Jesus himself. No one can come to the Father except through me. No. And at the end of verse 3, 
It was attested to us by those who heard. So friends, we're to see that not only did Jesus proclaim salvation as being the satisfaction of your judgment, that you don't have to be judged, but you can be saved by the work of Christ. Jesus proclaims this, but so did his followers. He proclaimed it to the people who proclaimed it to the author. So Jesus' message went out to the apostles, and very likely the apostles brought it not just to the author, but to his audience. And friends, the message of salvation of Jesus Christ is still going out, attested by the fact that we're gathered here this morning talking about it. People have believed it for 2,000 years. People have held on to the reality, the truth that there is a judgment coming for sin and that Jesus Christ is the only way out. And it was validated by signs and wonders and miracles. I'd point you to the words of Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. It says, John 3, verse 2, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So even the Jewish high authorities recognize Jesus by the signs and the wonders and the miracles that came alongside him. So, the author of the book of Hebrews, in lieu of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done, offers believers a warning to pay much closer attention so that you will not drift away. Because judgment is real, because God has historically kept his word, which is an indicator that he will continue to keep his word, which should tell us that there is a coming judgment. And the only way to avoid that judgment is with the great salvation provided for us by Jesus Christ that he told us about, his people have told us about, and we've seen at work. That's Ben's synopsis. So church, my guess is this leaves us potentially with two questions which we're going to jump into. Here's the first. Is this warning for me? Is it possible for me to drift away? If you're theologically astute, you might put it this way. Does this mean I can lose my salvation? Or possibly, is Ben a flaming heretic? So here's your answer. Friends, we need to acknowledge that there has always been and always will be people in the church now you can think capital C, universal church. You can think local church, little c. You can think Calvary if you want. There has always, will always be people in the church 
who look like us, act like us, talk like us, pray like us, and aren't us. I want you to think about your Bible for a second. I want you to consider Judas. No one knew he was the betrayer. I want you to think of Demas, who in Philemon 1 is commended for being a gospel worker alongside Paul. And in 2 Timothy 4, Paul ends his letter noting that Demas was so in love with the world that he deserted the work. These are biblical truths. They're real. And I can tell you, at 47 years of age, and having walked in ministry for 25-ish years, I could tell you my own stories. I could tell you of my college roommate, who I did years of ministry with, who I saw stand up in front of thousands and proclaim his testimony of how Christ brought salvation to his life. I watched him closely for four years and then some, only to find out later that he has turned away from Christ. And now he teaches comparative religions as an atheist at a large university in Texas. And I got to tell you, that's not an anecdote. That's me calling him about 10 years ago and saying, John, what am I hearing about you? And John's saying, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. John, what happened? I don't know. I don't know. I just, I just don't. So what does this mean? Kid you not, John jokes with me. I'll be the test case for once saved, always saved. We'll just have to see, won't we? Blood, that's terrifying. That's terrifying. You open up Hebrews chapter 2, there is a very real warning here that you and I need to pay closer attention to this. So how do we make our way through it? The book of Hebrews, rightly, speaks of salvation in the future tense. One of the challenges of our culture is we love to talk about salvation in the present tense. I'm saved. It's a fine thing to do. But that's not how the book of Hebrews talks about salvation. I want you to see this. This is a very, very helpful passage. I want you to turn over to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. If you've got a Bible, just turn there. And then do me a favor, underline it, circle it, put a big arrow next to it. Because if you have questions about salvation in the book of Hebrews, this becomes the clarifying answer. This is what he says. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We've come to share in Christ, present tense, if Indeed, we hold our original confidence to the end. Future. What he's saying, the proof that you know Jesus, that you're walking with Jesus, is the reality that you hold on to him until the very end. Now, some people don't like that at all. 
Because it provides a nuanced view. How do you know you're saved? If you endure to the end. We like the idea of thinking that the saints persevere. Rather than coming to an understanding, the Bible actually would testify that the persevering are saints. Because we want comfort. Now I need you to know, I want comfort for you too. We're about to land in comfort. But I want you to hear this first. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is a sufferer's doctrine, not a sinner's doctrine. This is what I want you to think about. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is entirely wrapped around the idea and the theology that you cannot outsin Jesus. You cannot outwork, outdo, outthink, or overcome the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. In your mourning, in your struggling, in your trials, in your temptations, can you do enough to lose Jesus? No. Here's the problem, right? When we talk about the perseverance of the saints, often people want to make it a sinner's doctrine. How much sin can I get into? How how deep can I play? How much can I get away with? And friends, i got to tell you, if that's your view of the perseverance of the saints, you need to be warned. Playing with sin is exceedingly dangerous. And we don't think it is. We need to be warned. From time to time, people ask me if you can lose your salvation. This is the answer. Not if you're truly saved. How do you know you're truly saved? You hold your original confidence to the end. Is it possible to lose your salvation? Now listen carefully to this. Because this is theology at work for you. You cannot lose what you did not earn. Let me put it again for you. You cannot lose what you did not earn. Biblically considered... If you have trusted Jesus for salvation, you should have come to the belief that you contributed nothing to your salvation. You brought sin to the equation. You're the problem. And that we are saved by believing in the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that his work, his blood, is efficient and sufficient for my salvation. Completely and entirely. And because all of that is based on his work, I cannot lose what I didn't earn. I can't.
So how do I endure? That becomes, rightly considered, the second question. If there's a good warning, can you lose your salvation? Not if you're truly saved. How do you know you're truly saved? By enduring. How do you know that you endure? How can you endure? That's the question. I'm going to answer it two ways, both from the book of Hebrews, because I think it's helpful to stay in Hebrews for this answer. First, I want to take us to Hebrews 3, because it's going to lean into another warning and exhort you. Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13. Take care, brothers. You can read brothers and sisters, every last one of you. Take care. You want to read, pay close attention, same idea. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now I want us to land here because I want us to see that sin is a liar. The sin is not just a pathway and a rebellion against God. It is a deceiver. The sin doesn't just take you and make you rebel against God. It lies to you as if what you're doing is good, what you're doing makes sense, and you somehow deserve it. It begins to deceive you to the point, according to verse 13, that you might be hardened. I really like this. I should keep doing it. It's not that bad. You could then take it to Romans 1. You're given over to, the, to your sin. How do you avoid that? Verse 13, you exhort one another every day. How do you do that? You take care, brothers. How do you do that? You stay in the fellowship of believers. You stay nearby people who love you, who watch over your life. You want to think about it tubing down a river? Tie yourself to as many good people as you can because you won't wander off. That's Hebrews 3. How do you endure? Stay in the fellowship of believers. How do you endure? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Give it to you in the NIV because it's how I have it in my head. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, if you were to take Hebrews 12 in context, you would read it after Hebrews 11, and you would think about the testimony of all of those in the church who have taken God at His word and lived like it was true. It's how we defined faith a couple years ago. Since we have such an incredible cloud of witnesses, you can think about those, you can think about the people around you, your people. Because Jesus is real, because he's accomplished so much for us, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. How do you run? You get rid of your sin. 
You get rid of the things that are hindering you. You throw them off. So that you can run with perseverance. How do you do that? Verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning and shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How do you endure? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Let's land in some comfort. This passage creates tension. And it should. Does a sign at the beach saying stay out of the water create tension? Only if you're trying to swim. Right? Only if you want to break the rule. Only if you want to wander away. You come to a sign of the path that says, go no further. If that's as far as you wanted to go, you're very fine with the sign. Doesn't bother you. Oh good, this is where we're going to turn around and go back anyways. The only way it causes true tension in your life is if you want to go past it then it should serve as a warning. Beloved, I want you to hear that I wholeheartedly think that the Bible warns us because it's through the warnings that we persevere. It is the little indications that say, be cautious, be careful, that keep us in the guardrails, that remind us of what's true, that get us to fix our eyes on Jesus, that call us to cling to our faith, that allows us to endure. What do you do with warning passages? You be warned. Pay closer attention to Jesus. How do you do that? Stay in the fellowship of believers. Fix your eyes on Christ. And because of the completed work of Jesus, he'll carry you through. That's the Bible. Now I want to add this. We'll pray and be done. If this causes undue anxiety for you, please know Satan wants to torture you. And I will gladly have any conversation about it you want to have. You can catch me afterwards. You can call me later. We can talk about it. But the reality is, is if you're worried about the warning, it's because you're trying to stay safe. And that's a good thing. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, Jesus is better He's better than any sin we could choose. He's better than any temptation we could consider. He's better 
than any worldly hope we could conjure up. He's better than any lie we might believe. Father, would you help us to see the warning sign this morning to pay close attention to Jesus? That we would be drawn into your word that we would be drawn into the fellowship of believers, that we might rightly tie ourselves to other believers who could warn us of the deceitfulness of sin and the hardening of our hearts. Father, would it be this morning that some of us are rightly warned and are called to take corrective action so that we might cling to you. Father, would it be that if there are people in our midst, and I know that there are, who this causes an undue anxiety for, who are striving to be faithful, who have their eyes fixed on Jesus, Father, would you be kind and merciful to them, reminding them all the while of the completed work of Jesus Christ, that they cannot lose what they did not earn. And that Christ is sufficient. We might keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And that we would be reminded that having heard the word of salvation, the gospel of truth, and believed that we were marked with the Holy Spirit as a guarantor of our salvation. Father, we are so thankful for Christ and for what He has done to save us. We rejoice in Him. In Your name we pray. Amen.